Welcome, and thanks for checking out the Living Word Family Church Sermon Podcast. Before we get to the message, we'd like to invite you to check out Living Word Family Church if you don't already have a church home. For more information, you can check out our website at livingwordfamily.org. It's also uh, Solid Rock's having their Christmas party tonight, so if you want to hang out afterward, they usually have a pretty good spread. And if I go really fast, we might get to it before they do. We won't have to eat the leftovers, so. Huh? <laughs> yeah. Well, I don't, think, I don't think they're doing a service. I think they're just doing games and stuff, so. Yeah, right on. Let me see if I can find my sermon on here, speaking of sermons. There it is. Open your Bibles to Second Samuel chapter 24. Second Samuel 24. This is, uh, David had committed a sin, not the big sin of his career, but a uh, pretty major one. He violated a, a principle that God had laid down, and uh, I won't go into all the details, but what he did was conduct a census. And uh, uh, there's a whole story there. It's like, what's the big deal about a census? He... Uh, but really just kind of indicated that he was counting his, he was measuring his strength and his glory and his kingliness by how big his army was. And this was not what God wanted him to do. And David was confronted by the prophet and admitted that he had sinned. And uh, God uh, offered him his choice of punishment. And David said, just let me fall into the hands of God, not the hands of men. And a plague struck the countryside, and now we come to the moment where David has met again with the prophet who tells him, here's how to stop the plague. And in 2 Samuel 24, beginning in verse 18, we read, And Gad came that day to David and said to him, Go up, erect an altar to the Lord on the threshing floor of Aaron of the Jebusite. So David, according to the word of Gad, went up as the Lord commanded. Now Aaron looked and saw the king and his servants coming toward him. So Arana went and bowed down before the king, bowed before the king with his face to the ground. And Arana said, what has my lord the king, why has the lord my king come to his servant? And David said to him, to buy the threshing floor from you, to build an altar to the lord, that the plague may be withdrawn from the people. Now Arana said to David, let my lord the king take and offer whatever seems good to him. Look, here are oxen for burnt sacrifice and threshing implements and the yokes of oxen for the wood. All these, O king, Arana has given to the king. And Arana said to the king, May the Lord your God accept you. Then the king said to Arana, No, but I will surely buy it from you for a price. Nor will I offer burnt offerings to the Lord my God with that which cost me nothing. So David bought the threshing floor and the oxen for 50 shekels of silver. And David built there an altar to the Lord and offered burnt offerings and peace offerings. So the Lord heeded the prayers for the land and the plague was withdrawn from Israel. This is a beautiful picture of the heart of David. He could have, you know, here's the guy who owns the property. King, what do you want? What are you doing here? And he says, well, I just want to buy this. And he tells him what he wants it for. I want to buy this threshing floor. I'm going to build an altar and offer sacrifice to God. And then Arana says, you don't need to buy it from me. Number one, you're the king. It would be my honor to give you something. Number two, you're offering it to God. Why would I charge you for it? I think, you know, if I were in David's shoes, I would have seen that as this is confirmation of the word of the prophet. He sent me to this man to buy the, 
to buy this and, and uh, offer the sacrifice, Arauna is confirming the word by giving it to me. But David says, no, I'm not going to worship God with that which doesn't cost me anything. Doesn't consider it proper worship. Now, there are applications of this. So we've talked about some of them before, and we'll talk about them again. Um, you know, for instance, if we only go to church when it's not conflicting with anything else. Well, I'll go to church today because there's nothing else going on. But we don't take that attitude with, well, I'd like to go to the football game, or I'd like to go to this, this concert or that, but I've got church. If we only go to church when it's convenient and when it's not conflicting with anything... If we, uh, if we only give offerings, when we experience a windfall, when we have excess, if that's the only time we put anything in the offering, if we only ever think of helping others when all of our needs are met, if we only sing, raise our hands, truly enter into worship when everything is going right, when we feel like it, then we're doing it wrong. We're doing it all wrong, aren't we? True worship is going to be costly. At least sometimes. But that's not the direction I'm going with that scripture tonight. First thing I want you to look at, the next thing I want you to look at, I guess, is Colossians chapter 1, verse 16. Colossians 1, 16 says this, For by him, and speaking of Jesus Christ, for by him all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth. Visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created through him and for him. And for Jesus, and by extension, for the Godhead, for the Trinity. All was cre- God created everything for God. He did it through Jesus. Jesus was the, creative, the agent of creation. Now, I have preached before, uh, some of you may even remember, that you know, when the question comes up, why did God create man in the first place? For what purpose? For what reason? And I reject the notion, of course, that God was lonely. God needed company, so he created men to keep him company. Uh, that he needed you know, affirmation. Uh, he needed someone to love. I reject that as well, although that's getting a little closer to the truth because God is love, and uh, love, in a very real sense, requires an object. But the doctrine of the Trinity tells us that there is love. There is perfect love and perfect communion in the Trinity. It's not, God is not a, a monad. He, we, we believe in Trin- Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. There is perfect complete they lack nothing in terms of community they didn't need mankind to complete their lives uh robbie zacharias let's see if i remember this story he 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 was filling out an entrance exam for some i don't know some master's program doctoral program i don't know what and uh the question was god is perfect explain and he said, he said, he said to his wife, the only harder question I can imagine is define God and give two examples. <laughs> God is perfect. Explain. I think the answer he came up with, God is the only being whose reason for existence is not outside himself. It's pretty good. Uh, so God lacks nothing. 
So they didn't need mankind. The best answer to that question I heard years ago was from a woman, I think I quoted her Sunday, Fuchsia Pickett. And, uh, and she put it this way, that God created man because being love, he was not willing to withhold that which he had the power to give. In that sense, he created us for our sake. It's kind of a mysterious way of putting it because we would have never known. (laughs) If he had never created Adam and Eve, we would have never known he didn't create mankind. But God knew he had the power to give life and he wasn't willing to withhold life even though he knew the end from the beginning. So in that sense, he very much made us for our sakes. But ultimately, as Colossians tells us, everything was made for him, including us. Right? Uh, look at this. Scripture bears this out all through Scripture. I'm just going to give you a small example, but it really is the tip of the iceberg. Isaiah chapter 48, beginning in verse 9. Isaiah 48, 9. For my name's sake, I will defer my anger, and for my praise, I will restrain it from you, so that I do not cut you off. Behold, I have refined you, but not as silver. I have tested you in the furnace of affliction for my own sake. For my own sake, I will do it. For how should my name be profaned? And I will not give my glory to another. Psalm 23, 3. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Now let me ask, first of all, going back to, let's look at these just briefly in that that Isaiah passage. He's going to defer his anger and not cut them off. Who benefits from that? The Israelites did, right? We do, if we apply that scripture to ourselves. He restores my soul and leads me in the paths of righteousness. Who benefits from that? We do. But he does it for his name's sake. Ezekiel chapter 20, verse 44. Then you shall know that I am the Lord when I have dealt with you for my name's sake, not according to your wicked ways, nor according to your corrupt doings, O house of Israel, says the Lord. Once again, who benefits? Israel. Why did God do it? For his name's sake. Many other examples, many other examples. But now I'm going to read a little bit longer passage in Ephesians, chapter 1. Ephesians 1, beginning in verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy And without blame before him in love, having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of his glory, to the praise of the glory of his grace, by which he made us accepted in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, according to the riches of grace, which he made to abound toward us in all wisdom and prudence, having made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in himself that in the dispensation of the fullness of times he might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth in him. In him also we have obtained an inheritance, being predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, that we who first trusted in Christ should be to the praise of his glory. In him you also trusted after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also, having believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of his glory. This is, there's a lot packed into those verses about the benefits of salvation. What happens to us 
because of salvation, because of the sacrifice of Christ. Christ. But what's it all for? To the praise of his glory. To the praise of his glory. It's for him. Now, we are accustomed as people, as human beings, well aware of our own flaws. We are accustomed to being a little bit offended when somebody is tooting their own horn. When somebody's telling you how great they are. Remember a guy named Muhammad Ali? What was he? Yes, but according to him, what was he? The greatest. Yeah, Superman. Yeah, he's the one who supposedly said uh, on an airline flight, they were encountering, encountering turbulence and the stewardess, the, the, the seatbelt light was on. And everybody complied except for Muhammad Ali and the stewardess came over to him and said, sir, would you please fasten your seatbelt? And he looked at her and said, Superman don't need no seatbelt. And she looked at him and said, Superman don't need no airplane either. I'm the greatest. And when somebody, and there's no shortage of people like that. We could spend all night talking about how people brag on themselves, famous people. And, uh, you know, and you, some are, are great to one extent or another. But why does it bother us? Because deep down inside, we know they are just like us. They've got their flaws. And therefore, we take a perverse kind of schadenfreudian delight when they fall, when they fail, especially if it's catastrophic, especially if it's public. Because what are we thinking? See? See, they're just like us. Jars of clay. But when God speaks of himself, he uses the ultimate superlatives. And he means it. And he's absolutely right. Ain't bragging if you can do it, right? He is perfect. He's not just better than us. He is different. Okay? He is as far... His ways are higher than ours. His thoughts are higher than ours. We can't even get our head around him, all right? But he's perfect. He's holy. He's almighty. And therefore, he is worthy of all glory, all honor, all praise. You know, the Bible says to give honor to whom honor is due. And we can praise one another. We talked a little bit about this Sunday. We can, we can, it's okay to sing the praises of somebody as long as you don't get carried away. You don't worship other people. But he's deserving of ultimate, all. We hold nothing back from him. Why? Because he is the ultimate. He's the all. He's holy, almighty, perfect. And he created everything he created to glorify himself. Now, see, again, when we hear something like that, it's like, wow, what kind of an ego trip is he on? He's God. He deserves that kind of glory. Anybody else that does that, I created this building, I created this company to glorify myself. Well, what's your problem, man? And we start doing some sort of analysis and say, ah, I know why you built the building that big. I know why you put your name on the, on the and I'm not criticizing anybody in particular. Don't, don't turn this into something political here. But... We try to do all this stuff, and then when we criticize, thinking, yeah, you've got some deficiencies there, and you're, and you're trying to make up for it this way. And so when God says, I created all this to glorify me, think, did you really need to? He just deserves it. He is absolutely worthy of all the glory that creation can reflect back to him. And we are the highest order of creation. We are the only ones who are able to offer conscious, voluntary worship. You know, the heavens declare the glory of God. Nature declares the the glory of God. But we consciously, 
declare the glory of God. And he expects to receive the praise and the honor and the glory that he is due. But just as David said, quite appropriately, that he would not worship the Lord with that which cost him nothing, I can sort of see I can sort of see this. This is a little bit tricky. You can kind of turn that around and picture God saying, I will not receive worship from that which cost me nothing. What I mean by is this. You see, within the Trinity, the Father and the Spirit honor the Son. The Father and the Son honor the Spirit. And the Spirit and the Son honor the Father. There is a type of worship within the Trinity. Now be careful with that and don't because when we picture worship, you know, there's the bowing down, there's the acknowledgement of a superior being. But we're call, we're talking the Godhead, which is they are co equal. But what there what is there? There is perfect love, perfect honor, and perfect community there. That's what I it's I say it's a type of worship. It's a different type. You know, it's us it's worshiping a superior being. With them it's it's just pure honor, pure agreement. Um and pure community among each other. They glorify one another, don't they? I mean, Scripture tells us that. They glorify one another. And uh, so when God, when it comes to God being honored by man, it's really the Spirit honoring God through man. The, the clearest example of that is tongues. When we praise, when we pray, uh, in tongues and offer him worship that way, singing in the spirit. Well, who's, who's producing that language? Who is turning that tongue into a language? It's the Holy Spirit, right? So the Holy Spirit is praising God. God is praising God through man. We were created for the praise of his glory. And when we yield to him, that is what he does with us. All right? Jesus, when he, he prayed in, in John, you know, all those you have given me. He looks at us as a gift from God, the ones, uh, those of us who turn to him. And yet God is giving us to Jesus as a bride. We are God's gift to himself. Now, let me ask you something. Did that gift cost him anything? It did, didn't it? He had to buy us back. You know, it didn't, when he created man, that was certainly an exercise of his power. But there was no diminution of his power. He didn't lack anything after he spoke the universe into existence, after he breathed life into the dust that became Adam. He wasn't, well, I'm out that much power now because his power is infinite. So creation in that sense didn't cost him anything. Didn't cost him anything. But to redeem us back from the fall, Buy, to buy us back from uh, sin, death, and the kingdom of darkness, when we, by an act of our will, turned and rebelled against him, that cost him. He was still determined to be glorified by you, glorified by me, but it cost him to put us in a position to do that. And he paid that price. And again... I'm so thankful that he did not come in some mystical, invisible way. 
This is something that uh, we talk about more at the resurrection. Uh, when you look at the case for the resurrection, it's one of the, it's one of the greatest evidences of the, of, the, of the Bible is how many things the Bible describes about the resurrection that it wouldn't have described if it really didn't happen. You know, that, I, I always think exhibit A is the disciples. You know, they, if it was a plot, if it was some secret uh, trick that they had pulled, why would they go to their death? They clearly uh, believed that Jesus had risen from the dead. But this is the thing. He could have just risen spiritually. And that would have been an easy thing to claim because you wouldn't need any proof. Look, we found his body right here. Yeah, but we didn't say he'd rise bodily. He, he rose, but he rose spiritually. It was a spiritual resurrection. It was invisible. But he didn't. He rose bodily, just as he said he would. The claim was very specific. And it was very important that it was a physical resurrection. But it's the same with his advent. Same with the incarnation. He could have come in some mysterious, purely spiritual, invisible way. But he didn't, did he? He came as a baby. He came as a real human baby. He grew as a real human boy. And became and died as a real human man. He died a very real human death. In fact, he was born, grew, lived, all so that he could die a very real death. And even though he bought us, even though he paid for us with the blood of his son, this is the thing that blows me away. He still receives us as gifts to himself. When we receive him as our Lord and Savior. We, the beautiful picture. Well, Jesus said, the angels in heaven rejoice when one sinner repents, returns to his father. And I don't, I read that and I believe it, but I guess if I was in the angel's shoes, I'd be thinking, huh, about time. Oh, finally did something smart. They're rejoicing. He bought us back. He, owned, he, he has every right. He had every right not to buy us back. Now, he's bought us back. He has every right to expect us to come. And yet, when we come, they rejoice. He rejoices. He receives us as a gift to himself. He bought and paid for us and receives us as a gift. This is kind of a bonus message, I guess, on the gift exchange series. So I got one more of those left, and this, this isn't it. That'll be Sunday. We'll be talking about Mary, actually. God will be glorified by creation. He'll be glorified by me. He'll be glorified by you. And I just want to ask you this. We're talking about God, the Father, giving us the gift of his Son. And then receiving us as a gift to himself. Stand up with me. We really are just about done. Simple question. If you have not given yourself to him, and let me remind you, when you give yourself to him, 
All you're giving him is what he's already paid for. If you've not given yourself to him, will you do that right now? Will you come up here and let me pray with you? I would love to lead you in this prayer where you just offer yourself to God and receive that free gift of eternal life. If you have, and I know most of you have, it's a decision you've made, it's a prayer you've prayed, it's a transformation, it's a new birth you've experienced. But will you remember, please, take the opportunity of this season to remember that sometimes true worship is costly. And when it's time to sing, when it's time to praise, will you make the conscious effort to give him the offering that he deserves? I will not worship the Lord with that with, with that which costs me nothing. I don't feel like raising my hands. I don't feel like closing my eyes. I don't feel like singing out loud. Is he worth it, though? Better believe it. Thanks for listening. We hope that this message encouraged and equipped you in your walk with Christ. Make sure to follow us on Facebook or Instagram to stay updated with what's going on at Living Word Family Church. Have a great day.